0: Well, this time in our service is when we dismiss our kids, third grade and under, to their classes down the hall. Uh, Miss Ashley is in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer Kids shirt. Uh, If you'd like your kiddos to go down the hall for their lesson as we move into our sermon this morning, they can follow Miss Ashley down the hall there. Uh, They'll take great care of them and teach them from God's Word in a way that they're able to grasp, comprehend, and understand. Uh, so it's good to have you with us this morning. My name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're so glad to have you as our guest. If you're coming back as a member many times over, it's really, it, it does my heart good to see you here in the room this morning. Uh, if you're joining us online from wherever you may be this morning, we're glad that you've tuned in there as well. Uh, if you've got a Bible this morning, open with me to Genesis chapter 9. We're working our way through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis together in this series entitled Foundations. And we've been looking at where we've come from to understand where we are in, the current, in light of our current cultural context and moment and this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 is the text that we'll read together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you and want to follow along there, feel free to do so. Uh, but if you do have a copy in front of you, I encourage you, open it, read with us, follow along as we consider the words of, uh, Word of God together this morning, uh, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 9 down through verse 7. I'll read it for our hearing and then we'll consider it together. Genesis 9, beginning in verse 1, reads as follows, and God blessed Noah, And his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon every thing that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is God's word. Earlier in the book of Genesis, as we spent, we spent four weeks taking a look at what it means to be made in the image of God as those who have that unique capacity to reflect God's glory back to himself and out into the world to those who are around us. And we said it expresses itself in three ways, in our rule, in our righteousness, and in our relationships. And so we took four weeks to look at that reality together. And I... <laughs> it, whenever we think about being made in the image of God, there are several things that come to my mind. One of the things that's forever etched and seared into my memory is the very first time that I held my children. And those of you who are parents, you can remember those occasions. The very first time that you held them in your arms and you looked into their eyes. And you were holding in that moment a, a, a little life that was made in God's image. Uh, One who was a glory reflector. Uh, I I will never forget that moment whenever the nurse handed me my son, right, who's now learning to drive. Uh, And I will never forget that moment whenever the nurse handed me my daughter, who has now turned our world upside down, right? Um, And I will never forget those moments of staring into their eyes, beholding another image bearer. One who was made to reflect God's Glory. It's forever been imprinted upon my mind and pressed upon my soul. In fact, so much so that, you know, one of, the things, one of the ways you can identify what's really important to people is to ask them the question, what would you rescue if your home ever erupted in flames? Right, And I can tell you the thing that I would go for would be the, my wife who shares my bed and the two children who live in my home above anything and beyond anything else, any other possession that's in my home. To rescue them from the flames. And the reason for that, the reason for that is because there is something different about them than there is about the dog, right, who also lives within our home. There is something different about them than there is about any other possession, any other electronic that I might have purchased over the years, any other memorabilia that I might have collected over the years, any other keepsakes from other countries where God has been at work and used me in sending me to other places. Anything else that's in my home, the thing that I value the most and would want to rescue and save from the flames would be the other image bearers in my home. Because there's a unique value for, of the, that is placed upon human life as those who reflect the image of God and bear the image of God. And because all human life is, our image bearers of God, all human life has this unique underlying and infinite value. In fact, it's so valuable, human life is, that whenever we see in the scriptures that whenever a human life is taken, that God will require an accounting for that. And in fact, this text that we come to this morning is a hard one right? That's one of the things about preaching and teaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't just get to skip around and pick whatever you feel like talking about that morning. You're forced to deal with what comes next in the passage. And this is what comes next for us in Genesis chapter 9. And in this text, we learn that human life is so valuable to God that whenever one is taken, that God will require a reckoning. He will require a reckoning. Now, that word reckoning in our language originally meant to add up or to calculate or to estimate, to maybe assign a value to, but it's come to describe a demand for accountability, right? Whenever a reckoning is coming, right, you're gonna be, accountability is gonna be demanded for your actions. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Whenever I was in college my freshman year, right, I took a course called College Algebra. Now, I am not, a. if you've been around Here, long enough, you know, I am not a math person, okay? Right? I can do math because Excel helps me in spreadsheets, but I am not a math person. But I remember in that college algebra course, the final exam for that course was a reckoning for me, all right? Because my professor was demanding an accountability for my understanding of the course content. The problem for me was that I failed that reckoning, okay? And as such, failed the course. Right? And the reason was because there was an accountability for how I'd spent my time that whole semester because I spent more time in a duck blind than I did studying algebraic equations. All right? My parents were not very happy about that reality. But I failed that reckoning, that, that demand, that requirement of accountability See, a reckoning is an occasion where we're asked for, required, or demanded to give an account for what we have done. That's what a reckoning is. And here in our text, God says he will require that accountability. He will demand that accountability. He will ask for that accountability from anyone or anything, man or beast, who takes the life of another human being. Now, the word reckoning in the Hebrew scriptures often carries this collateral idea of avenging or exercising vengeance. The idea of requiring blood for blood or life for life. And in fact, it's come to be known as a legal principle called lex talionis, which literally means eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. This word for requiring in the Bible, in, the, in our text this morning, is an imperfect verb. And what that means is this. okay, It means that it's an uncompleted action. Okay, so both in the present and in the future, it's not something that has yet to be fully completed. In other words, there's no expiration date for this reckoning that God establishes for the taking of human life. It transcends generations and geography. Every culture, every society, and every century, it's applicable. So what we have in verses 5 to 6 in Genesis chapter 9 is the foundation of what we will call in our legal system capital punishment. That when a human life is taken, the lifeblood is drained, is how the language of the text talks about it. There must be a reckoning because God requires it. God requires it. See, sandwiched between the promise at the end of Genesis 8 and the covenant that God establishes in Genesis 9 is this pronouncement that God makes, that He will require the reckoning, and it's with the aim of protecting and preserving human life. Now, a few things I want us to notice here about this reckoning. First is this. There's a difference between reckonings, right, or accountability or punishments for manslaughter and murder in the Bible. If you read Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 to 29, God gives Israel some instructions about two types of situations which might arise resulting in the death of another human being. And we would call them in our legal system manslaughter and murder. And the difference then, as is the difference now, is the difference between was there intent or was there not intent in the death. See, when intent could not be shown in ancient Israel, in the book of Numbers, then the, as the Bible calls them in Numbers 35, the manslayer, right, Maybe where we get our term manslaughter, the manslayer was to flee to one of these six cities of refuge that God had established for them. Where they could live until the death of the current high priest. So whenever they, whenever they brought about the death of another human being and they did not intend to bring about the death of another human being, they could go to a city of refuge until the high priest who was in office at the time of the incident, Died, And when that high priest died, then they were free to do, as Southwest says, roam about the country once again. However, when intent was involved, there is no city of refuge for them in Numbers 35. But over and over and over again, it says, whether it was with an iron object or with a wooden object or with their bare hands, that the murderer was to be put to death. Numbers 35. So there is a difference, there is a nuance there between intent and the lack of intent. Second, in addition, the reckoning or a capital punishment is not a personal matter, right? But it's a societal obligation. If you look in verse 5, three times God says, I will require, I will require, I will require. When you ask the question, why would God repeat himself three times in one verse, right? Is it because he forgot he said it two words ago? That is not what's going on here. God emphasizes the appropriate response to the murdering of another human being by this threefold repetition of, I will require... So that means this reckoning, listen church, is not left to our individual discretion to take revenge, but rather the reckoning is God's work. He requires it, and the, one of the, way, the way that he does it is through legal means and statutes, which is why he gives those in the law for ancient Israel. And in fact, if you fast forward into the New Testament in Romans 12 to 13 to be exact, what you're going to find... In Romans 12 and 13 is that God has given the sword to the state, to the civil government, not to the church, and not to the individual, but to the governing authorities. In Romans 12, if you read Romans 12, at the end of Romans 12, you find a prohibition against exacting personal revenge whenever someone has hurt you or hurt someone that you love. In fact, I'll read it to you. Romans 12, 19 and 21, we read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is our personal responsibility. Whenever someone hurts us, wounds us, wrongs us, or does so to someone that we love. And yet, in the very next portion of Romans, in Romans 13... At the very next verses, we find that it is the role of the state or the civil government that is appointed, as Paul calls them, God's servant to execute justice on those who practice evil. He says it this way, Romans 13, 1 to 4. Just after he's talked about our personal responsibility, he talked about civil responsibility. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is, speaking of the civil authorities, he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of god an avenger who carries out god's wrath on the wrongdoer see personal responsibility do not take vengeance right leave room for god to exercise his vengeance and his wrath but the way that god does it in time and space is through legal statutes established with civil authorities whom God has vested that authority as his servant to carry out his, Paul says, his wrath on the wrongdoer. All right, so there is a reckoning that God establishes in every generation, every geographic location that is carried out, not by the individual, not by the church, but by the governing authorities, the civil authorities or the state. So what we see is that it's not left up to the individual to exact justice on those who have committed heinous and evil actions such as murder. So if someone murders your sister, you don't go out and murder their sister. If someone murders your brother, you don't go out and murder their brother, but you leave that, the execution of that justice to the civil authorities, or else then you are prosecuted as a murderer as well, because it's not in your hands as an individual, it's in the hands of those that God has made responsible for carrying out those verdicts. He says, it's the civil authorities that God's appointed to execute justice, bear the sword, avenge the wrongdoing, and carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Furthermore, I want you to see that, we, that the foundation of this reckoning that God requires is the unique and underlying value placed on human life as those made in the image of God. See, in verse 5, God says three times, I will require. And then in verse 6, he says, the reason for the requirement, that little word, for. For, right? You take a life, a life is taken. For God made man in his own image. You see, capital punishment is prescribed not so much to comfort the grieving family, as it was to vindicate the insulted creator, whose very image had been insulted through cold blooded, selfish disregard. So one commentator said it this way he said, The offense itself is not against the murdered, nor his family, nor society at large. And then he says, Obviously, it impacts all those, but ultimately, the offense is against God. Kevin DeYoung, pastor and author, he writes, Capital punishment for murder is not an assault on the image of God, but a defense of it. It It's because human life is so precious that the taking of human life needs to be punished so severely. The principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, wound for a wound out of Exodus 21 was not a matter of cruel and unusual punishment, but of controlled retribution as a means of protecting the community and valuing the dignity of human life. So God requires this reckoning. But why? Why is this reckoning necessary? Let me give you three things this morning. First of all, mercy requires it because mercy requires justice. See, mercy and justice are like the two sides of the same coin. Justice is whenever we get what we do deserve, and mercy is whenever we do not receive what we do deserve. Right, God, with somebody withholds what we do deserve, that's mercy. Whenever we receive what we do deserve, that's justice. And justice in God's eyes requires that the response to an offense, whether against God or against humanity, that that, that response be proportionate to the offense that was committed. That's the principle of lex talionis. And it served as a restraint or a limitation to ensure that the punishment didn't exceed right, the offense. But also that the punishment would be proportionate to the offense that was committed. Now, the argument: of Jesus' love ethic in the New Testament sets aside the law of lex talionis. But to the contrary, Jesus affirms the divine basis of Old Testament ethics over and over and over again. Where What he pushes back against is the distortion of that that the Pharisees and religious leaders had engaged in. Nowhere does he set aside the requirements of civil law in the Old Testament. Further, it leads to a perversion of legal justice to confuse the sphere of private relations with that of civil law. Right? While the thief on the cross... The thief on the cross found mercy and forgiveness whenever Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That did not wipe out the consequences of his actions that had put him on the cross in the first place because even he himself in that moment says, we are being justly punished for that is what our deeds deserved. And so people may ask the question, what about mercy? Mercy. Now, there could be no mercy where justice is not satisfied. Justice entails receiving what, in fact, we do deserve because we did, in fact, know better than to do what we actually did. To be punished, however severely, because we deserve it is, as C.S. Lewis writes in his little essay, God in the Dock," he says it's to be treated with human dignity as human beings created in God's image. On the other hand, Lewis says, to abandon the criteria of righteous and just punishment is to abandon all criteria for punishment. He says, indeed, mercy extended to offenders whose guilt is certain yet ignored creates a moral mockery that over time helps pave the way for the collapse of an entire social order. Chuck Colson who was once an opponent of capital punishment, but later came to be an advocate for capital punishment. Tells the story of what tipped the scales for him in the favor of the death penalty when he writes this. He says, perhaps the emotional event that pushed me over the philosophical edge was the John Wayne Gacy case some years ago. John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer here in the United States. He says, I visited him on death row. During our hour-long conversation, he was totally unrepentant. In fact, he was arrogant. He insisted that he was a Christian, that he believed in Christ, yet showed not a hint of remorse. The testimony in the trial, of course, was overwhelming. I don't think anyone could possibly believe that he didn't commit those unspeakably barbaric crimes. He says, What I realized in the days prior to Gacy's execution was that there was simply no other appropriate response than execution if justice was to be served. He says, there are some cases like this, the Oklahoma bombing is a case in point, when no other response is appropriate, no other punishment sufficient for the deliberate savagery of the crime. Second, the need for moral accountability. See, the death penalty ultimately confronts us with the issue of moral accountability in the present life. And in our society, everyone seems to be unwilling to take responsibility for their actions. It's always blamed on someone else, right? We can blame it on the dysfunctional family that we grew up in, or the fact that we had our knuckles wrapped by a ruler in grade school, or our behinds paddled by a a board in middle school. No, they don't do that anymore in public schools. When I was growing up in South Louisiana in public school, we still got paddled in the gym room by our gym teacher, all right, whenever we did something crazy, all right? There was discipline that was exercised, all right? But we blame it on all every, everything, uh, everything and everyone else other than taking responsibility for our actions. So as a result, we reach a point in society where individuals like the Menendez brothers plead for mercy and get it. Because after all, they're orphans, but they made themselves orphans by killing their own parents, yet they plead for mercy and receive it because no one's willing to be responsible or hold others accountable for their actions. See, non-Christians and Christians alike are not absolved from the consequence of their behavior. Whether or not faith is professed, there are penalties for everything in the civil, uh, civil statutes from speeding. Listen, you cannot get off from a speeding ticket because you confess to be a, profess to be a believer, Right? The, the judge isn't going to wipe away that ticket. You're still going to have to pay it, and there's there are penalties for everything, from speeding to strangulation. In American society, people are literally getting away with murder, and the moral stupor that's descended over our culture reflects a decay, this erosion of time-tested moral norms that have been guarded for generations. And so when we scratch our heads and ask the question, can we really wonder why there's such moral dry rot everywhere within our culture? Because there's a need for moral accountability. And sometimes, sometimes, the nature of the crime demands, demands that type of reckoning. Third, and finally, God's standard is non-negotiable. See, on the whole, on the whole, the full range of biblical texts weigh in in favor of capital punishment. And it's, the death penalty is warranted and should be implemented, however, only in those cases where the evidence is certain. It's in accordance with biblical standards. That's why in the Old Testament, you had to, have, had to be established on the standard of two or three witnesses. It wasn't just he said, she said, One, one person's word against another. It wasn't circumstantial evidence. It was witnesses who saw what took place and were aware of the plans. In the public debate over the death penalty, we're dealing with values of a higher order, the respect for the sacredness of human life, its protection, the preservation of order in society, and the attainment of justice through law and these biblical sanctions against heinous crimes such as murder are there to discourage to discourage the wanton destruction of human life and underneath those underneath those is a recognition of the utter sacredness of human life as made in the image of god is it no wonder then that the shedding of blood in ancient israel We're told polluted the land and it was a pollution for which there was no substitute and thus required the death penalty. There was no offering to bring. And so the one who took the life, their life was taken. God requires a reckoning. Now in our particular cultural moment, we may ask this question, what about the inequities of the judicial system? And listen, I, I think that's a valid question worth asking and answering. And I would respond to it this way, that unequal application does not remove obligation. Unequal application does not remove obligation. I believe that our justice system, like every other human creation, is flawed and broken in places. Right? Because there's nothing that we as human beings have created that is perfect, pure, and always gets things right. Right, I and and, and I read an art, a couple of articles this week in preparation for this message. One by Chuck Colson of why he supports the death penalty, and one by an author named Matthew Arbo, who writes an article why I oppose the death penalty. Right, they were two conf- like, like, uh, uh, like like a debate they were having over uh, through written means. And in that article, Matthew Arbo cites several statistics regarding the inequitable application of the death penalty since 1973. And he says this, he says, Since 1973, more than half of death row inmates are people of color. Since 1977, the overwhelming majority of death row inmates, 77% have been executed for killing white victims, even though African Americans make up half of all homicide victims. In 1973, 140 individuals on death row uh, since 1973, I'm sorry, 140 individuals on death row have been exonerated. And almost all those death row inmates could not afford their own trial attorney. They had to take whatever public defender the state assigned to them. Since 1976, 82% of all executions have taken place in the South. And of 344 exonerees represented by the Innocence Project, 20 served time on death row. Of those 344 exonerations, 71% involved eyewitness misidentification. 46% involved misapplication of forensic evidence. And 28% involved false or coerced confessions. So listen, the system doesn't always get it right. And there is inequitable or unequal application of the death penalty, but the unequal application doesn't remove the obligation, doesn't remove God's required reckoning. Does the judicial system need to be revamped and reformed? Yes, Yes, but that does not remove the obligation that we have for protecting and valuing human life made in the image of God. So, what's the aim then of this reckoning? Why does it exist? Here's here's what I would like to say to that this morning. I believe that what God is aiming at through this is a culture that values human life. Values human life. Look, the instruction about capital punishment in verses 5 and 6 in Genesis 9 is set within the frame of the Lord's promise at the end of Genesis 8, never to curse the earth or strike down all living flesh again. That's what comes immediately before this context. Immediately after this context is the covenant that he makes with Noah, Noah's sons and all living flesh, never to cut them off by the waters of flood again. Which is given to all humanity. So God says, I'm I'm establishing a system to preserve and protect human life. In addition, the instruction about capital punishment is set between two bookends in chapter chapter 9, verse 1 and chapter 9, verse 7, where God says to Noah and His sons, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, multiply in it, bear human life, bring more image-bearers into the world. And so this, this pro this this Proclamation about capital punishment is set within the framing of all this protection, preservation, and procreation of human life. This means that the aim of this reckoning is the flourishing of a culture that values this human life that's made in the image of God. A culture that values all human life equally, values human life personally, and values human life legally. A culture that values human life as well, not just solely for its underlying value, not for the sake of its utility. Listen, we live in a culture that has come to value human life for its utility, what it's useful for, not for what it is in its underlying value. Let me give you a few examples of how this fleshes out in our lives. When you behold the image of a sonogram, and you put your hand on the belly of a pregnant woman, and you feel a child that's being formed in that womb kick. What you're feeling is an image bearer of God. When you look into the eyes of a newborn baby fresh from the womb, you're beholding one made in the image of God. When you see a 97-year-old woman who is frail and shaky and has a hard time remembering the names of even those who are closest to them, you are seeing one made in the image of God behind all of the wrinkles. When you interact with a teenager or a young adult whose brain is not yet fully formed and they are making crazy decisions... And make you wonder if they are human or alien. You're dealing with one made in the image of God. When you encounter someone of a different race, ethnicity, nationality, or culture who sees things differently and does things differently than you, you're encountering someone made in God's image. When you meet someone with a physical or mental disability who's not capable of certain physical or mental or relational norms. I I suspect that all of us have had those types of interactions with folks who are either physically or mentally disabled. You're meeting someone who is precious in the sight of God because they bear His image. When you notice that a new neighbor has more ink visible on their skin, on their arms and legs than they do clothing, you're catching a glimpse of someone made in God's image. When you hear a report of someone who's just committed a crime and has been found guilty by a jury of their peers and incarcerated, you're hearing about a person who reflects has the capacity to reflect God's glory as one made in the image of God despite the choices that they've made that have put themselves in that position. When you become acquainted with someone who's struggling with mental health and wonders if tomorrow has anything in store for them. From day to day and week to week, you're getting to know someone who's been made in the image of God. All human life, in its variegated forms, is made in God's image and therefore is worthy of dignity and value and should be protected. That is why God requires a reckoning. That's why we would stand for the life in the womb. That's why we stand and speak for life outside the womb whenever it is gratuitously and maliciously taken. That is why there must be a reckoning even for the five officers in Memphis who beat to death a man. There must be a reckoning. There must be a reckoning in God's size. If there is to be a culture that values human life, Look, I'm all for saving the whales and the trees and the planet. And I believe there's a profound connection there because a part of valuing human life is valuing an environment that allows it to flourish. But you must recognize there's something different about the baby, about the grandmother, about the physically and mentally incapacitated individual than there is about the whale or the dog or the tree. There's something different about them. They are made in the image of God and therefore should be protected in ways different than we protect the trees, in ways different than we protect the whales, in ways different than we protect the cats especially. (laughs) Value all Human life. In fact, God placed such high value on human life that from the foundations of the world, we're told in the book of Revelation that the Lamb was slain. He was not slain for the whales, he was not slain for the trees. He was not slain for the dogs, no matter how cute they are, and the cats, no matter how much they make me sneeze. But he was slain for image bearers of God. That's how much God values human life. That the lifeblood of his own son would be given to redeem fallen humanity. And as those who have been redeemed, church, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, as those who have been redeemed, there ought to be an ongoing, enduring commitment to the preservation and protection of human life, even when that means a life must be taken because with intent they took another. Because God himself was so committed So committed that He drained the lifeblood of His Son. So may our minds be renewed by God's Word in such a way that we would be for the preservation and protection of all life that's been made in His image. If you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, you've never Repented of sin and come to trust in Him. The one that God gave in your place. That your sin might be dealt with. That you might receive mercy. That justice might fall on Jesus. And you might receive the mercy of God. And listen, He stands ready to receive you this morning. If you would come to Him in repentance and faith. Saying, I... Give up on running and ruling my own life, determining for myself what is right and wrong. But I will yield to this one whom God has made my savior, my lamb who was slain in my place. I receive that by faith. And God stands ready to receive you and extend his grace to you so that you would not one day bear his wrath, but you might experience his kindness and his mercy and his grace. That's how committed God was to human life, including yours. I want to pray for us this morning that God would give us the grace to take this heavy, heavy word from the Scriptures and to press it and print it. On our our hearts, hearts, souls, and minds that it would shape the way that we live. Let's pray together. Our good and gracious Father, we recognize that this is indeed a heavy word. But it is one that we need. Or else you would not have put it in your word. Father, I do pray. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.